And so I'm going to jump right in. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting with verse 2. It says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, there's a, there's a play on words happening here in this passage where um, Paul is using head with two different meanings. First, uh, to talk about your head, the part of your body, and then also to talk about uh, something like a person who has uh, a position of authority. So if a man prays or prophesies with a cover over his head, it dishonors Christ, who it just said is his head. Uh, Continuing on the passage, but, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So if a woman does not cover her head while she prays or prophesies, that dishonors her head, that is, uh, her, her husband. And a couple of things uh, about these religious activities that it's talking about here, prayer and prophecy. Um, for both uh, men and women, these things are happening as a part of the public worship of the church. Um, Prophecy, we're going to define that a little more, and we're going to talk about it a lot when we come to uh, 1 Corinthians 14. But for now, let me just say, prophecy was all about bringing a message from God to the church. So that's clearly a a public act. And then uh, prayer, it could, of course, be both private or public, but here it seems to be talking about public prayer as part of the worship service. So together, prayer and prophecy kind of stand for the parts of the service that are directed toward God, prayer, and then the parts of the service that are directed toward the rest of us, toward each other here in the service. And in uh, both men and women are expected uh, to be upfront leading prayer and prophecy in the church. It goes on to say, but every woman who uh, prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now that is, it's a rhetorical if. That is, it means more or less the lines, uh, since it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Um, now, what's the difference between uh, having your hair cut off or having your head shaved? Well, one is like a short haircut, and one is like shaving yourself bald, right? Um, either one is said to be a disgrace for a woman. A man ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And what he's referring to here is the account in Genesis chapter 2, where it describes how God uh, created Eve using Adam's rib. She was made from him. 
And uh, he did that when it was determined after creation that it was not good for the man to be alone and that he needed a woman to be what God intended for him to be. Then it says, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, if you understand uh, what angels have to do with this whole, instru- this whole discussion here, you're a lot smarter than I am, and uh, I would love to hear from you later. This is one of those statements that you find a few times in the Bible. You'll read a thing, and you'll just uh, you'll read it, and you'll really wish you could talk to the biblical author and say something like, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Can I please have some explanation of what you mean here? Because this statement seems to come out of nowhere. And, um, and actually, someday I plan to do exactly that. When we're all in heaven, I'm going to go and find Paul. And I'm pretty sure he's going to be tired of answering this question because everybody's going to be asking this. But I'm, we're going to have all eternity, so he's going to explain it to us. But until then, we're left guessing as to what angels are doing in this passage. But going on, it says, uh, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, and that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering? Now, when he says, judge for yourselves, uh, he's not saying uh, this is an invitation to just make your own decision about this. Uh, All's good either way. Whatever you decide, just judge for yourselves on this. No, he's, he's, uh, the way this is worded shows that the answer is not in question. He's not saying, judge for yourselves, maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't, no big deal. It's, it's more like, judge for yourselves and you will see the truth of what I am saying, because it's obvious. And then he says, uh, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So that last part is essentially saying, look, don't argue with me about this, because this is the universal practice of all the churches. Now, I've tried to explain a few parts of this as we've uh, read through it here, uh, but this is a very tough part of the Bible to really know what to do with. Um, In fact, one of the scholars that I was reading this week and studying for this, uh, he said this. He said, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. And that explains why Mike is sitting over here, happy, and I'm up here sweating it out, trying to figure out how to explain this whole thing. Um, So let me say right off, I'm not going to be able to authoritatively explain everything in this passage this morning. And that's not just because I don't have enough time. Uh, It's because it's just uh, there's some difficult things here. That, uh, that I just uh, don't fully understand, like that part about the angels. I just don't know, really know what the Bible is trying to say there. Um, and there are some parts that I have a pretty good idea of what it means, but I'm not really confident enough to speak very authoritatively on it. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to draw out of the text a few key statements, 
And we're going to uh, take a look at those uh, statements, and we're going to spend some time talking about how we should understand and apply passages like this one. And by the end, we'll have a better understanding of at least some of what the wisdom of God is in this passage and how it applies to our lives today. So here are the things, uh, the few things that I'm going to uh, take out of this passage that are clearly taught in the passage, instructions that are given to us. Uh, number one, when women participate in public worship through prayer, uh, public prayer or prophecy, um, and it seems clear that this really applies to all kinds of roles that women might play in a, in a public worship service, they need to wear a head covering. Second, on the other hand, when men participate in public worship through public prayer or prophecy, and again, it seems like we're talking about all kinds of roles, they need to make sure that they don't cover their heads. Um, and then the third one, women should not have short hair. And fourth, men should not have long hair. So, the first thing to notice about uh, these instructions is that we are not following them. Um, at least most of them. Uh, here at Clearwater Church, we don't, uh, we don't follow these things, and the large majority of churches in Anchorage and, and around the country are in the same place. We're not, we're not following these instructions. So, do any of you find it a little disturbing that we're not obeying what the Bible says here? Uh, or maybe for some of you, what you find disturbing is not that we're not following this, but the fact that this is in the Bible at all. That is, isn't it kind of a little embarrassing to have a Bible? We say, this is the Word of God, this is authoritative, and then it comes out with this kind of crazy thing about how long people's hair ought to be, and, uh, and, and we're, we don't really know what to do with that. Or maybe you're uncomfortable because you agree that we don't need to follow this teaching in any literal way, but you're not sure why not. And if you're not sure why we don't need to follow this part of the Bible literally, then what about other parts? How do we decide? Uh, how do we know if a particular biblical teaching is something we need to follow or something we don't need to take literally? And if we don't take it literally, should we just cut those parts out of our Bibles? Or do we need to apply these instructions in some kind of a different, non-literal, exact way? So those are some of the questions that we're going to deal with this morning. Um, now let's, let's, just to be clear here, there is no denying that there are many instructions in the Bible that we are not following in a literal sense. Um, the reason that Christians feel free to not follow many of the teachings in the Bible is that we collectively have concluded that some specific instructions are not meant for us. They were instructions that had to be followed by the people that they were originally given to, but there are reasons why we no longer are obligated to follow those things. But here's the thing. If we don't have some kind of a criteria for determining which ones we must still follow and, and which ones we don't, we're left in a bad place. If we feel free to simply ignore any instructions we don't like and say something like, oh, well, that one doesn't apply to me, then we will surely end up disregarding commands that God expects us to follow. 
we need to know what the reasons are that some of the instructions don't apply directly to us. And we need to have a system for making these kinds of decisions. So we're going we're gonna to at least make an attempt to, starting, uh, that, to explain a, a system like that. So we're going to look at a couple of different kinds of scriptural instructions that we are not obligated to literally obey here today. The first are instructions that are given to individuals that were never meant to be broad instructions to all people all the time. So there's quite a lot of that in the Bible. I'm just going to look at one uh, example here of things that were just for uh, one person at one time. The first example is from uh, the Apostle Paul. He's telling the story of when Jesus appeared to him in the book of Acts, and he says, uh, he's quoting himself, What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. So this is an easy one. It's pretty clear that this passage is not telling us that we all need to go to Damascus in order to find what God's will is for our lives. That was what Paul needed to do then. It's not what we need to do now. Uh, That's a pretty easy and obvious example. The next kind of command uh, that we don't need to follow are ones that are more broad, made to people in general, but they're later explicitly changed by another part of the Bible, showing that the original command was temporary and no longer needs to be followed. And I've got a couple of examples from, of, of passages like that. One is from uh, the book of Leviticus, where it says, Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures of the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, you must not eat their meat. Now, this is one part of the very specific uh, laws in the Bible uh, about the kinds of things that are okay to eat and the kinds of things that we are forbidden from eating. Just before this passage is the one that says we're not supposed to eat bacon. Sad one. Uh, But this one forbids lobster, shrimp, and just the other day, I was out uh, halibut fishing with Dan Wellborn over here. Thanks again, Dan, for taking us out. And, uh, and we pulled up a halibut, and Dan said, oh, yeah, notice that it doesn't have any scales, which means uh, it doesn't, it's not kosher. It doesn't fit the, uh, the description here. So halibut is also out, according to this passage. Um, so why is it okay for us to disregard these instructions and eat bacon, lobster, and halibut? All in the same meal, hopefully. Um, the reason why is because Jesus said it was okay. Um, so here we have Jesus uh, uh, discussing uh, these food laws with his disciples, and he says, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. That part in parentheses there, that's part of the biblical text. That's the comment made by the biblical author about what Jesus had said, uh, part of the inspired text of the Bible. So that's an example of an Old Testament command that was changed later in the New Testament. Um, Now here's another example of a command that Jesus himself gave that he later changed. In this passage, Jesus is sending out his disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles 
or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus' instructions here are for a Jewish-only ministry. Only preach to Jews. Don't preach to anybody else. Um, But of course, uh, before he ascended back to the Father, after his resurrection, Jesus gave the disciples a very different scope to their mission. In this other uh, time, Jesus said to them, it says, uh, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we see that that previous instruction, only go to the Jews, was a temporary instruction, always intended to be temporary, and Jesus later came and told them, Now preach to everyone. So those examples are, again, pretty easy to deal with. If there's another place in the Bible that changes a specific command, then the original command no longer needs to be followed. So now we can eat halibut and we can preach to Gentiles. Um, But sometimes it is not necessary for there to be a specific change made by the Bible itself. There are some instructions that are given in order to deal with specific situations that needed a particular command, but when the situation changes, the command no longer needs to be followed literally. Most of those instances are commands that relate to specific cultural practices that the people uh, the command was originally given to were dealing with, but people in different cultures are not obligated to follow these commands in the same way. And let's look at a couple of examples of this in order to explain what I mean. The first passage is part of God's law in Leviticus. There in Leviticus it says, Do not cut the hair on the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. Now these are some of those commands that you find in the Old Testament sometimes that kind of make us scratch our heads and think, What is he? What? Why does he care about trimming our beards and hair? And, and, um, but, uh, but there are still some people who see this and they say, well, I might not know why it was commanded, but it's commanded, and so I'm going to do it. And so they follow this very, very closely, quite literally. And there are um, a lot of people, a few that follow it all, and a lot of people who believe that at least some part of this is still a Christian obligation. So here's a picture of a... Uh, Jewish Hasidic guy who takes that first part very seriously. Notice the little ringlets hanging down there? This is why they have those ringlets is because they see this command that says, do not trim the hair on the sides of your head. And so they never do. They let their hair grow their whole lives. Um, Just that one part, though. The rest of their hair they usually keep pretty short. Um, And also you see his big bushy beard there. Um, I don't know any Christians who don't feel free not to grow ringlets or shave our beards. Uh, But the part about tattoos, though, that's a more controversial one, right? Uh, Do we need to follow that or not? Uh, We'll come back to that example in a few minutes and explain why we don't need to follow any of those particular commands literally. My next example comes from our own book of 1 Corinthians. There in 1 Corinthians, it says this. It says, All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this command to greet one another with a kiss is, in fact, repeated five times in the New Testament. 
Greet one another with a kiss. Uh, we don't follow that at Clearwater. However, uh, when we were talking about this in the office this week, Pastor Mike gave me a great story about uh, an experience that he had in a place where they do still practice this and take this command very seriously. See, back in the 90s, Mike was preparing to go as a missionary to Russia. And uh, he was having lunch with one of the mission leaders, Dwayne, at a restaurant here in Anchorage. And Dwayne felt he needed to give Mike a warning about this practice. He said, uh, look, in the Russian churches, they very much follow this biblical command to greet one another with a kiss. So Mike's thinking, okay, no problem. You know, the little kiss on the cheeks, no big deal. It's like, no, no, they don't kiss on the cheeks. They kiss on the lips. And so he thinks, okay, well... It's not so bad. There's a lot of pretty, uh, you know, he's a young, young single guy at the time. A lot of pretty Russian girls. Maybe get to kiss a few girls. It's not so bad. Dwayne says, no, 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 no. Men only kiss men, and women kiss women on the lips. How many Russian men did you say you kissed on the lips, Mike? Very stopped counting at 100 Russian men that he has kissed on the lips. Um, So these last two example texts, the Leviticus one about hair on the sides of your head and your beard and about tattoos, and then the repeated New Testament command to greet one another with a kiss are instructions that we no longer follow because we live in a different time and place, in a different culture, where those behaviors do not carry the same significance that they did in ancient Canaan or in the ancient Greco-Roman world or apparently in Russia. Um, But what does that say about our belief in the Bible? Don't we believe that the Bible is the eternal word of God and that it is relevant for life today, despite the fact that it was written long ago? Isn't that the subtitle of our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, a study of God's wisdom applied to everyday life? That is, we are applying this 2,000-year-old scripture to our lives here in Anchorage, Alaska in 2018. So how does our practice of not following these kind of biblical instructions in a literal way fit with what the Bible says about itself? Here's the verse that, uh, that Isaac referred to earlier. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, including Leviticus... And odd passages in 1 Corinthians that give instructions about head coverings and appropriate hair for men and women. And even the kissing instructions. We do believe that it is all God-breathed and authoritative. Now, some of you may have noticed that I've been saying uh, that we don't follow these commands literally. I haven't been saying that we don't follow these commands. Uh, That's because we do believe that we are required to follow all of these instructions just in a different way than the people of that time did. Here's how we do that. When you come across any instruction in the Bible, in order to really understand and apply it correctly, we need to answer some questions. The first question is, what is the specific behavior being commanded? What's the specific behavior being commanded? And then the second question is, what is the principle behind that command? In other words, what is the reason? Why did God command this particular behavior? What What was the point of it? 
Usually the specific behavior is not that hard to figure out. Greet one another with a kiss, okay? The details might be a little bit uh, fuzzy. Is the Bible telling us to kiss on the cheeks, on the lips, on the hand? Are we to stick to kissing people of the same gender? I don't know. But despite a little bit of open questions there, the basic idea of greeting with a kiss, that's easy to, to figure out. Or from our other passage, don't get a tattoo. Hey, that's, that's pretty simple. That's the, that's the behavior that's being commanded. But the principle behind the command sometimes is easier, sometimes a little more difficult to figure out. Um, for the kissing command, with a little thought, it's not hard to understand what the principle being expressed by the kiss. It's a, it's a, it's a warm and friendly greeting which uh, four times it's described as the holy kiss. The fifth time it's described as the kiss of love. This is not a romantic kiss. This is um, a, a normal part of the culture of that day. When people met friends and relatives, they would give them a kiss. And God tells us in the Bible that he wants Christians to greet one another uh, in affectionate, loving ways. In ancient Corinth, the appropriate way to do that was with a kiss. And in many cultures today, uh, including Russia apparently, uh, the kiss still has that same meaning, and churches ought to follow the instruction in exactly the same way that the people in Corinth did. But in our own culture, people don't really greet each other by kissing. Only your weird Aunt Ruth kisses you hello, and it's really awkward most of the time. So... So we shouldn't really follow that instruction literally. Instead, uh, the, the, the principle of Christians showing love for one another through affectionate greetings is what we must follow. But we do it through a different specific behavior. So what would that be? Maybe a, just a good warm handshake and a, and a, and a uh, polite greeting in, a, in an affectionate way or maybe a side hug, or who knows. But we, we need to greet one another still following the Bible's instructions. The instructions are to greet one another warm and friendly and in a loving way. But we do it a little bit differently than the way they did it back then. And that's the third question that we need to answer to, in order to apply, understand and apply a biblical instruction. What specific behavior will best express the principle behind this instruction in my own setting? So a lot of times, um, the answer to that uh, is that it's going to be the same as it was back then. Most of the time, uh, the modern application of the principle will be the same as the ancient application. But in some cases, like with the kissing instruction, we need to change the application in order to properly follow the command. Now, how about the instructions about trimming the side of your head or not getting tattoos? What is the principle behind that? Um, now, to figure out the reasons behind some of these kinds of instructions, we need to do some research. It's not obvious at all, and there's very little context given in Leviticus to figure it out from. So you have to do some historical research. And here's what we find out for this section of Leviticus. All of these instructions about hair and beards and cutting for the dead and tattooing your bodies, they all relate to ancient pagan religious practices. Devoted followers of false idols in those days would trim their hair or their beard in a certain way, or they'd get a tattoo in order to show their dedication to these false gods. God did not want his people imitating 
the worship of these idols. And so uh, he commanded them not to get tattoos or pagan haircuts. So what is the principle behind the prohibition of these practices? It's something like, uh, do not imitate the practices of false religions by making yourself look like you are a follower of a false god. In our own culture, hairstyles and tattoos do not have religious meaning in the way that they did back then. Some tattoos might have a religious meaning, but only if the tattoo itself is a religious symbol. The fact that somebody has a tattoo does not show anything about their uh, religion. Uh, In our culture, uh, the fact that you have a tattoo or a particular hairstyle does not mean you're devoted to a false religion. In our culture, all kinds of people have all kinds of tattoos, and many of them don't carry any meaning at all except that the owners think they look cool. So uh, because of this difference in culture, it is not necessary for us to forbid trimming our hair or getting a tattoo uh, in order to be obedient to the principle of not imitating the practices of false religions by making ourselves look like we are worshipers of a false god. A modern example that I, uh, I did think of, an application that would be maybe don't shave your head and wear an orange robe because then you'll look like you're a Buddhist monk. That's the kind of thing that this was about. Uh, don't imitate the... Uh, special way that these people make themselves appear as part of their devotion to a false god. But haircuts and tattoos, really not a problem for us. Not because we're not following the instructions of the Bible, but because we are following the principle as it is properly applied in our own time and place. One more very quick illustration. Uh, In James chapter 2, we're told that we should not show favoritism in our church services by giving rich people good seats and making poor people sit on the floor. Um, Now, we retain the principle of not showing favoritism and discrimination based on economic class, but we can't say, hey, I'm not making the poor sit on the floor, so I'm following the biblical command. It's, It's a little different than that in our culture. In our culture, we would never make people sit on the floor, so we need to find appropriate ways to avoid um, that kind of prejudice and, uh, and favoritism in our, own, in our own way without following the command in a literal way, the way it's written for uh, the people of James Day. Now, we need to bring this all back and apply it to our passage about head coverings and hair length from 1 Corinthians. Here are the four basic instructions again. When participating in public worship, women must cover their heads. Men must be sure not to cover their heads. Men need to have short hair. Women need to have long hair. Those are the specific behaviors that are being commanded. So what are the principles behind these instructions? Now, remember how I quoted that scholar earlier who said that this passage was one of the most controversial, complex, and opaque sections of the Bible? Uh, there are a number of different understandings of exactly what's going on here and what was the history of all this stuff in Corinth and, and what the Bible is trying to say and all its discussions of heads and all this stuff in this passage. Um, so it's hard for us to really uh, nail down exactly what the principle is here. But um, here's my best understanding of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, We see here that Paul appeals to the very nature of things 
and to the universal practice of all the churches as part of his reasoning for these instructions. That phrase, the very, of na- the very nature of things, what does that mean? Well, it means something along the lines of the way things are. Just look around you and see how everything is, the very nature of the way things are. Um, Paul's saying, look around you. Do you see how virtually all men have short hair and virtually all women have long hair? That is the way things are. It's the very nature of things. Or at least it was in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Same goes for the universal practice of all the churches. Paul's saying, this is the way that it is done. We all have the same cultural norms when it comes to hair length for men and women. So, if a man or woman deviates from this norm by having the wrong hair length, it means something. Now, I read scholars who had a few different ideas about exactly what it would mean if a man had long hair or a woman had short hair, but what is clear is that it would send some sort of inappropriate signal. And the same is true for the reasons behind the head covering instructions. There's not really agreement about exactly what message people would be sending by women not covering their heads or men covering their heads uh, in, in the worship, but it was clear that it was sending some kind of a dishonoring message that was inappropriate for public worship. Now, because we can't be exactly sure what the reasons were for these commands, we can't be very specific about what the principle is, but keeping it very general, we can say that there's a principle that Christian men and women must not send inappropriate messages by their hair length or their head coverings in public worship. Christian men and women must not send inappropriate messages by their hair length or their head coverings in public worship. So, what is the specific behavior that we ought to follow in order to best apply this principle today? Well, what do various hair lengths for men and women uh, mean? What's, what's the meaning of those things in our own culture? Well, pretty much nothing. <laughs> um, when, when someone has short hair or long hair, it doesn't really communicate much in, in our um, in our day and age. It wasn't too long ago, uh, back in the, the days of the hippies and stuff, when a long-haired guy, he was expressing some kind of rebellion against society or something like that, but, but, uh, but that's not really no longer the case. And short hair for women has been a normal and meaningless choice for about 100 years, I figure. Uh, so we don't need to go out of our way to avoid sending Uh, inappropriate messages with our choices of hairstyle. Hairstyles don't carry significant meaning in our culture. Now, the meaning of head coverings is also not very significant in our culture. For women especially, there's basically no meaning as to whether her head is covered or not. Um, We do still have some cultural rules about men in hats, though. Um, There are a few situations where our culture still considers it inappropriate for a man to to have his head covered, especially like the singing of the national anthem. Um, But a lot of the rules about men's and hats, such as uh, men shouldn't wear their hats indoors or things like that, those were part of our culture a few decades ago. But really, uh, they don't carry much weight anymore. But since there is still some meaning to to men's hats in certain situations, 
you'll notice that we pretty much still follow this instruction about men's head coverings here at Clearwater. You won't see guys up here leading in the worship service with ball caps on. Um, just because there's, there's still a bit of a, 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 a cultural issue with that, uh, that practice. And so, so we don't do it. But, uh, but I think as, as culture continues to change, we may f- uh, see that that also becomes no longer necessary. But for now, we retain the same behavior for men that was followed in Corinth. But on the issues of hair length and women's head coverings, we can avoid sending dishonoring inappropriate signals without following the same rules that they had in Corinth. So, this has been kind of a different kind of a sermon this morning. Um, We've spent a lot of time talking about these principles of interpretation rather than really digging into our our passage and, and interpreting these biblical commands, but... But I hope that, uh, that we've all found something helpful here in the procedures for how to interpret biblical commands. And I trust we'll find it uh, very helpful as we seek to apply God's wisdom to our daily lives. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing your will to us in your word. And we pray for wisdom. We ask you for wisdom to to be able to answer those three questions about what is it you're commanding, what is the principle behind it, and how can we follow that principle today? Lord, uh, help us to have unity and wisdom and to get these things right as we seek to follow your commands the best we can. Amen.